Hey, Evo, you've heard of that Western movie, haven't you? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? How young do you think I am? When you heard the headline from a study that there is no safe level of alcohol, you probably reacted like my friend Simon. It's just another one of those studies that people do because they've got to spend their grant money. They go off and they do one, and then a few years down the line or a few weeks down the line, we'll get another report that says something else about how you can drink one glass of wine or two glasses of wine or this or that, and there's some benefit. And so, in the end, they serve... I don't think they serve any purpose for the average person like me. They do maybe serve a purpose for people in the medical community who read those sort of things, those kind of reports. Over 500 authors. Yeah. I think there is a there is a purpose to it for the medical community, but the reality is it's never going to stop people drinking, ever, because no one's going to suddenly go, ooh, I read this, and they've said I should stop drinking. People are going to either live their life with drinking responsibly or not, and that's a public choice, and I don't think it actually serves much purpose. I mean, it's an interesting read. But I don't think it actually has much impact on lifestyle. It might have some impact on policy, but that's a different thing. You may recognize that voice as my good friend, Simon Majumdar. He is a best-selling author, Food Network celebrity, good friend, and this podcast's resident culinary historian. Oh, when I first met Simon, it was in a bar. Simon has a great podcast called Eat My Globe, and we have a sample of his podcast at the end of this episode. Today, we are going to dive into the conflicting data about alcohol. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. Terry Simpson. You're listening to my podcast, Culinary Medicine, Food Cons and Food Conversations where we have conversations about food as medicine and discuss food cons, exposing myths, cons, and montebanks. Alcohol has been found to be beneficial to some populations, such as those in the Mediterranean region, and alcohol is a part of the Mediterranean diet. Some of the compounds in wine, for example, resveratrol, we believe to be responsible for a decreased risk of heart disease and cancer. That decreased risk is clearly seen in those people who adhere to the Mediterranean diet. This data came from long-term studies following millions of people. It is from those studies that the hypothesis of one or two glasses of wine a day are good for you. But now this report came, and one of the authors said, and I quote, this study shows that the idea of two drinks a day being beneficial is a myth, unquote. So I asked the lead author, do you drink? I do. I, I, it's like the risk of anything else. You need to manage it. And at certain points, it's going to be a lot more harmful than others. To give a kind of a ridiculous example, arsenic, if you take too much, it kills you. But, but if you, you take not that much, it doesn't really do anything. And so at this point, after the study, I'm drinking at the level of around maybe two to four drinks at most a week um, before it might, it might have been a little bit more. That's a level for me, at least, where, where the risk seems acceptable. That sobering view is from whom? 
My name is Max Griswold. Uh, I'm a senior researcher at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. We look into the global burden of disease, so uh, how many people are dying, what they're dying from, and, and what's causing it. This is a, a recent uh, little study we did on, on alcohol use specifically and its, its effects on population health. Dr. Griswold, tell me how you came to these conclusions. There's a lot of conflicting evidence out there on alcohol use, and we really wanted to get a a very comprehensive uh, picture for our main study, the global burden of disease. And and so uh, we we spent about uh, three years collecting a huge amount of data on on who's drinking, how much they're drinking, and what kind of uh, risk or health benefits maybe are associated with that. We we ended up collecting about uh, 700 surveys detailing how much people are drinking, um, lots of various sources on, on alcohol sales, um, the tourism, uh, how much people might be drinking while traveling, things of that nature, and also on the risks involved. So looking at some very large, what are called cohort studies, um, where you follow some people through time and see uh, what they're doing in their life and what they eventually die from. And we got about 600 of those studies. So, so it was pretty big, and we, we tried to wrap it all up and, and come to a more comprehensive and nuanced picture of the relationship between alcohol and health. For the people who say no alcohol level is safe, let's do a bit of math based upon this study's conclusions. If you drink one drink a night, your risk of having something happen is about four out of 100,000. If we check 100,000 people that have one drink a night, four of them will have some adverse outcome. If you drink two drinks a night, your risk of something bad happening increases to six out of 100,000. Compare that with the side effects of a common antidepressant. Where out of 100,000 people, 15,000 will have a side effect. But let's not get too cavalier about alcohol. I would just say keep it simple. Uh, Just drink a little bit less. I mean, we we should all be exercising a little bit more and drinking a little bit less and and just developing healthier habits, of course. But uh, drinking has a huge advantage, I think, for um, there's just a subset of people who are drinking a lot, where if we can get that down lower, it would be great. And even uh, um, for someone even drinking as little as a drink a day, if you can cut your consumption in a quarter or in a half, you, you can see a, a positive health benefit from that. And, and I think we could all just consider just maybe it's a Friday and we really want to have a drink and we do that Friday, but then the next one we, we hold off. And so just keeping in mind the effects and minimizing it when, when you can and, and choosing to take on that risk uh, when you think is appropriate. So, Dr. Griswold, who should think about drinking less than others? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Western Europe, it's a huge crisis there. He actually meant Eastern Europe and Russia. It's a huge crisis there. We were uh, calculating as much as in certain populations, 50% of people were were dying from it. Um, Men, in particular, um, are really affected by alcohol a lot more than women by a factor of about uh, three or four. And, and that's true in pretty much any population, be it, be it Canada, the UK, or India, especially uh, people in their ages of 35 to 55. This is a huge cause of premature death for people um, before the age of 59. And also younger people. We did a little extra study uh, on drink driving, and I, I was just surprised by the amount of drink driving in, in that population, how it's such a huge cause of death. 
In going through the study, I noticed that at 40 grams of alcohol, there was a clear increase in all the bad effects of alcohol. Increased problem with cancer, accidents, premature deaths. 40 grams is about half a bottle of wine, three beers, or three shots of whiskey, vodka, gin, tequila, etc. So I asked Dr. Griswold if this is what he noticed in the study. Absolutely. I mean, we found what a lot of other previous studies have found, uh, that there can be some protective effects at small amounts of drinking on very specific causes, ischemic heart disease, ischemic stroke diabetes. And uh, there's, like you mentioned, a threshold effect where it kind of shoots up like a rocket ship at around four drinks per day. But um, the risk, you know, I wouldn't call it negligible from about one to four. It it depends on on the outcome because you got to look at the full picture it seems like around one drink per day is when you start to see pretty big effects on a population level. One of the studies about the beneficial effects of alcohol is called the EPIC study, and it came from Spain. The purpose of that study was to determine which of the Mediterranean food groups had the most effect upon health. Those components of the Mediterranean diet are fruits, vegetables, legumes, dairy, meat, nuts, oils, whole grains, and alcohol. And as you may recall, the more adherent people were to incorporating those foods in their diet, the healthier they became, decreasing the risk of cancer by 24% over five years, and decreasing the risk of heart disease by 33% in five years, and all causes of death by 25% over five years just by adhering to a better diet. And based on their work, the greatest effect came from, you guessed it, alcohol. So I asked Dr. Griswold about this, and he agreed. I think it fits in pretty well. We, we included EPIC as, as one of the studies, and, and there's quite a few supplemental studies that have been formed on, on the EPIC cohort itself. Um, It really depends on what you're dying from. If you're dying from a lot of ischemic heart disease in your population and a lot of diabetes, then that two-drink level is going to be probably maybe the right point for you. But but that's a pretty uncommon fact when causes of death are predominantly ischemic heart disease and diabetes. And so I think uh, it's consistent with that. And I'd imagine within that cohort, there's probably uh, certain things they're dying from that are uh, very different than what we would see in say, South Africa or China or Thailand or even here in the U.S. But um, I think it's consistent with the rest of our study. It's just nuanced. So the good. In moderation, and by that I mean no more than two drinks a day for men and one for women, sorry ladies, alcohol has measurable health benefits. But you can't save those drinks up, so no weekend binges. Alcohol is, by this report, safer than many drugs. Now the bad. Because alcohol is widely available, and in some places, like Russia, widely abused, it is also responsible for a lot of premature deaths. Let us not forget, alcohol is addictive. And for many who have suffered from the enslavement of the addiction of alcohol, they will tell you, that all amounts of alcohol are toxic, and it is, for them. While some use alcohol as a social lubricant, it can also be a social impairment, leading to arguments. From the holiday dinner where a family member has a different viewpoint, 
to tragic consequences when people's tempers are unleashed, leading to verbal and even physical abuse. Sometimes an unkind word, set under the influence of alcohol, can lead to a permanent loss of friendship. That is social toxicity. Now the ugly. Much child neglect and abuse is proportional to alcohol consumption. We have seen that in the bush villages of Alaska, but it's also been seen in the big cities from Phoenix to New York. You may be more familiar from the ugly of alcohol from accidents. And as a surgeon, I've seen the effects of alcohol. On any given night in the ER trauma center, I've seen that the overwhelming majority, over 90% of the accidents, shootings, burns, collisions, and injuries will have alcohol involved. Hold my beer isn't funny. It's a tragedy leading to the loss of lives and limbs, and usually among the young, who should have so much promise in years ahead of them. Alcohol has another effect that was mentioned in this report. Alcohol is a promoter of cancer. It doesn't cause cancer. But if you're exposed to some environmental factor that does cause cancer, like smoking, asbestos, radiation, environmental pollutants, alcohol is additive, or it will increase your risk of developing cancer from those carcinogens. If I were prescribing alcohol as a physician, I would be obligated to tell you the social and health consequences, and I would give you a specific dose. Just like you shouldn't have a bottle of aspirin for a backache, you shouldn't have an unlimited supply of alcohol either. Too much alcohol is a leading cause of death among the youngest and healthiest among us. It's really important to know your personal limits. And no matter what you think they are, if it's more than two drinks a day, you need to rethink your relationship with alcohol. Alcohol is a drug, and like every drug, there is a clearly defined level of toxicity. Special thanks to Max Griswold for lending his comments to today's show and to our resident commentator, Simon Majumdar. And of course, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Culinary Medicine with me, Dr. Terry Simpson. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor, and you should always seek the advice of a trusted, licensed medical provider with experience in your particular condition or concern before taking any actions. Of course, if I am your doctor, you already know that you're drinking too much. Sharing is caring. Culinary Medicine is a part of Your Doctor's Orders Network and is produced and distributed by our friends at Simpler Media. Were it not for Evo Terra, finding music, I would embarrass myself with the selection. And I have to thank my executive producer, the talented, beautiful producer girl from Producer Girl Productions. She's Canadian and refuses to acknowledge that Nickelback is also Canadian. See, my selection really is bad. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Dr. Terry Simpson. That's Dr. Terry Simpson. A complete transcript of this episode, along with references, can be found at yourdoctorsorders.com. Until next time, don't drink the water, drink the wine, and leave a little for me. And now a bit from Simon Majumdar's podcast, Eat My Globe, which drops October 1st of 2018. 
everybody, I'm Simon Majumder, and welcome to the very first episode of Eat My Globe, a podcast about things you didn't know you didn't know about food. Like for so many people, food has always been an obsession for me. My first thoughts in the morning are about what I'm going to eat for the day. My first words to my wife each day are about what she would like me to cook for supper. And my last thoughts at the end of each day are about meals past and meals yet to come. My calendar is filled to bursting with restaurant reservations. Just about every vacation I take with my wife will be predicated on places where we know, or at least hope, that the food is going to be great. And if you look at my social media accounts, at Simon Majumda, on everything, by the way, you will see that the majority of my posts are about food I have either eaten or prepared. Food has been the focus of just about every conversation I have ever had with my family. We swap email pictures of the meals we eat each day, whether they be cooked at home or eaten at a restaurant. And I think it would be fair to suggest that just about every meaningful conversation I have ever had with any family member has been carried out over a meal. I'm also fortunate enough that food is what I get to do for a living. I work as a food writer. I write for Time Out Los Angeles as their food critic. And those of you who watch the Food Network may have seen my wizened face as I dish out what I'm told are rather tough judgments to chefs on shows such as Iron Chef America, Beat Bobby Flay, and Cutthroat Kitchen. But for as long as I can remember, food has always meant far more to me than just what I put in my mouth and my stomach. I have always been just as interested in the impact food has had on culture and civilization and the impact that culture and civilization have in turn had on food. It's hard to overestimate the relationship between food, civilization, and culture. Along with the need to defend themselves, it was the ability to raise crops and domesticate animals for milk, flesh, and hides that first allowed man to form into social groups that later became cities and nations. From the earliest records we have of civilizations, and the beginnings of the great empires of ancient times, food was an important tool to keep the populace happy, a source of trade and vast wealth, and even a way to pay troops. For example, Roman soldiers were partly paid with hugely valuable salt, giving us the Latin saldere, to give salt, which we still use today in the word salary. Formalised routes for the trading of food became established, I am sure we have all heard of the Spice Trail. And as people migrated along these routes, they took their food, ingredients and cooking styles with them, interacting with the original inhabitants in each land in a symbiotic way that led to the creation of new dishes. This still goes on to this very day. You only need to drive around the United States of America and you will see the impact that the cuisine of new arrivals has on restaurants in our Main Street shopping malls and on TV just to see the power food can have. Which of you out there doesn't crave barbecue? The result in different regions of the United States of slavery and the immigration of German refugees. Who fails to think of chicken soup when they are ill or depressed? That's thanks to the influx of Ashkenazi Jews. Even the all-American hamburger has a long history that dates back to the Roman Empire and the Mongolian warlord Genghis Khan. Wars and riots have been fought over food that we might now treat as cupboard staples. The stock exchanges we now look to every day to check our shares or our 401ks were founded to sell options and futures in spices. 
and excesses and shortages in food supplies could still create vast wealth or shameful poverty. And this is what Eat My Globe is going to be all about. Not just sharing our joy for food, but also looking at some of the stories that make food one of the great sources of understanding our history. So each week, we will take an ingredient, a dish, a theme, a person, a nation, and look at the fascinating story of how they became part of the world that we often take for granted. So make sure to check out the website associated with this podcast, eatmyglobe.com, where we will be posting recipes inspired by the series, the transcripts from each episode, along with all the references and resources we use putting episodes together, in case you want to delve deeper into each subject. There's also a contact button. So please do push it and let us know if there are any subjects that you would really like us to cover. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe, recommend us to your family and friends, and give us that all-important good rating on your favourite podcast provider. So thank you, and goodbye from me, Simon Majumda, and we will speak to you soon on Eat My Globe, things you didn't know you didn't know about food. The Eat My Globe podcast is a production of It's Not Much But It's Ours and Producer Girl Productions and is created with the kind cooperation of the UCLA Department of History and its Public History Initiative Director, Karen Wilson, PhD. We would also like to thank Sybil Villanueva, both for her help with the research and in the preparation of the transcripts.